Section 13 of the State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. Troop in New York City. Section 13. Theodore Roosevelt, December 6th, 1904. Part 3. The veterans of the Civil War have a claim upon the nation such as no other body of our citizens possess. The Pension Bureau has never in its history been managed in a more satisfactory manner than is now the case. The progress of the Indians towards civilization, though not rapid, is perhaps all that could be hoped for in view of the circumstances. Within the past year, many tribes have shown, in a degree greater than ever before, an appreciation of the necessity of work. This changed attitude is in part due to the policy recently pursued of reducing the amount of subsistence to the Indians and thus forcing them, through sheer necessity, to work for a livelihood. The policy, though severe, is a useful one, but it is to be exercised only with judgment and with a full understanding of the conditions which exist in each community for which it is intended. On or near the Indian reservations, there is usually very little demand for labor and if the Indians are to earn their living, and when work cannot be furnished from outside, which is always preferable, then it must be furnished by the government. Practical instruction of this kind would, in a few years, result in the forming of habits of regular industry, which would render the Indian a producer, and would effect a great reduction in the cost of his maintenance. It is commonly declared that the slow advance of the Indians is due to the unsatisfactory character of the men appointed to take immediate charge of them, and to some extent this is true. While the standard of the employees in the Indian service shows great improvement over that of bygone years, and while actual corruption or flagrant dishonesty is now the rare exception, it is nevertheless the fact that the salaries paid Indian agents are not large enough to attract the best men to that field of work. To achieve satisfactory results, the official in charge of an Indian tribe should possess the high qualifications which are required in the manager of a large business, but only in exceptional cases is it possible to secure men of such a type for these positions. Much better service, however, might be obtained from those now holding the places were it practicable to get out of them the best that is in them, and this should be done by bringing them constantly into closer touch with their superior officers. An agent who has been content to draw his salary, giving in return the least possible equivalent in effort and service, may, by proper treatment, by suggestion and encouragement, or persistent urging, be stimulated to greater effort and induced to take a more active personal interest in his work. Under existing conditions, an Indian agent in the distant West may be wholly out of touch with the office of the Indian Bureau. He may very well feel that no one takes a personal interest in him or his efforts. Certain routine duties in the way of reports and accounts are required of him, but there is no one with whom he may intelligently consult on matters vital to his work except after long delay. Such a man would be greatly encouraged and aided by personal contact with someone whose interest in Indian affairs and whose authority in the Indian Bureau were greater than his own and such contact would be certain to arouse and constantly increase the interest he takes in his work. 
The distance which separates the agents, the workers in the field, from the Indian office in Washington is a chief obstacle to Indian progress. Whatever shall more closely unite these two branches of the Indian service and shall enable them to cooperate more heartily and more effectively will be for the increased efficiency of the work and the betterment of the race for whose improvement the Indian Bureau was established. The appointment of a field assistant to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs will be certain to ensure this good end. Such an official, if possessed of the requisite energy and deep interest in the work, would be a most efficient factor in bringing into closer relationship and a more direct union of effort the Bureau in Washington and its agents in the field. And, with the cooperation of its branches, thus secured the Indian Bureau would, in measure fuller than ever before, lift up the savage toward that self-help and self-reliance which constitute the man. In 1907, there will be held at Hampton Roads the tricentennial celebration of the settlement at Jamestown, Virginia, with which the history of what has now become the United States really begins. I commend this to your favorable consideration. It is an event of prime historic significance in which all the people of the United States should feel and should show great and general interest. In the post office department, the service has increased in efficiency and conditions as to revenue and expenditure continue satisfactory. The increase of revenue during the year was $9,358,181.10, or 6.9%, the total receipts amounting to $143,382,624.34. The expenditures were $152,362,116.70, an increase of about 9% over the previous year, being thus $8,979,492.36 in excess of the current revenue. Included in these expenditures was a total appropriation of $152,956,637.35 for the continuation and extension of the Rural Free Delivery Service, which was an increase of $4,902,237.35 over the amount expended for this purpose in the preceding fiscal year. Large as its expenditure has been, the beneficent results attained in extending the free distribution of mails to the residents of rural districts have justified the wisdom of the outlay. Statistics brought down to the 1st of October 1904 show that on that date there were 27,138 rural routes established, serving approximately 12 million of people in rural districts remote from post offices, and that there were pending at that time 3,859 petitions for the establishment of new rural routes. Unquestionably, some part of the general increase in receipts is due to the increased postal facilities which the rural service has afforded. The revenues have also been aided greatly by amendments in the classification of mail matter and the curtailment of abuses of the second-class mailing privilege. The average increase in the volume of mail matter for the period beginning with 1902 and ending June 1905 that portion for 1905 being estimated, is 40.47% as compared with 25.46% for the period immediately preceding and 15.92% for the four-year period immediately preceding that. Our consular system needs improvement. 
salaries should be substituted for fees, and the proper classification, grading, and transfer of consular officers should be provided. I am not prepared to say that a competitive system of examinations for appointment would work well, but by law it should be provided that consuls should be familiar according to places for which they apply, with the French, German, or Spanish languages, and should possess acquaintance with the resources of the United States. The collection of objects of art contemplated in section 5586 of the revised statutes should be designated and established as a National Gallery of Art and the Smithsonian Institution should be authorized to accept any additions to said collection that may be received by gift, bequest, or device. It is desirable to enact a proper national quarantine law. It is most undesirable that a state should on its own initiative enforce quarantine regulations which are in effect a restriction upon interstate and international commerce. The question should properly be assumed by the government alone. The Surgeon General of the National Public Health and Marine Hospital Service has repeatedly and convincingly set forth the need for such legislation. I call your attention to the great extravagance in printing and binding government publications and especially to the fact that altogether too many of these publications are printed. There is a constant tendency to increase their number and their volume. It is an understatement to say that no appreciable harm would be caused by and substantial benefit would accrue from decreasing the amount of printing now done by at least one half. Probably the great majority of the government reports and the like now printed are never read at all, and furthermore the printing of much of the material contained in many of the remaining ones serves no useful purpose whatever. The attention of the Congress should be especially given to the currency question and that the standing committees on the matter in the two houses charged with the duty take up the matter of our currency and see whether it is not possible to secure an agreement in the business world for bettering the system. The committees should consider the question of the retirement of the greenbacks and the problem of securing in our currency such elasticity as is consistent with safety. Every silver dollar should be made by law redeemable in gold at the option of the holder. I especially commend to your immediate attention the encouragement of our merchant marine by appropriate legislation. The growing importance of the Orient as a field for American exports drew from my predecessor, President McKinley, an urgent request for its special consideration by the Congress. In his message of 1898, he stated, in this relation, as showing the peculiar volume and value of our trade with China and the peculiarly favorable conditions which exist for their expansion and the normal course of trade, I refer to the communication addressed to the Speaker of the House of Representatives by the Secretary of the Treasury on the 14th of last June, with its accompanying letter of the Secretary of State recommending an appropriation for a commission to study the industrial and commercial conditions in the Chinese Empire, and to report as to the opportunities for and the obstacles to the enlargement of markets in China for the raw products and manufactures of the United States. Action was not taken thereon during the last session. I cordially urge that the recommendation receive at your hands the consideration which its importance and timeliness merit. In his annual message of 1889, he again called attention to this recommendation, quoting it and stated further. 
I now renew this recommendation, as the importance of the subject has steadily grown since it was first submitted to you, and no time should be lost in studying for ourselves the resources of this great field for American trade and enterprise. The importance of securing proper information and data with a view to the enlargement of our trade with Asia is undiminished. Our consular representatives in China have strongly urged a place for permanent display of American products in some prominent trade center of that empire, under government control and management as an effective means of advancing our export trade therein. I call the attention of the Congress to the desirability of carrying out these suggestions. In dealing with the questions of immigration and naturalization, it is indispensable to keep certain facts ever before the minds of those who share in enacting the laws. First and foremost, let us remember that the question of being a good American has nothing whatever to do with a man's birthplace any more than it has to do with his creed. In every generation, from the time this government was founded, men of foreign birth have stood in the very foremost rank of good citizenship and that not merely in one, but in every field of American activity, while to try to draw a distinction between the man whose parents came to this country and the man whose ancestors came to it several generations back is a mere absurdity. Good Americanism is a matter of heart, of conscience, of lofty aspiration, of sound common sense, but not of birthplace or of creed. The Medal of Honor the highest prize to be won by those who serve in the Army and the Navy of the United States decorates men born here, and it also decorates men born in Great Britain and Ireland, in Germany and Scandinavia, in France and doubtless in other countries also. In the field of statesmanship, in the field of business, in the field of philanthropic endeavor, it is equally true that among the men of whom we are most proud as Americans, no distinction whatever can be drawn between those who themselves or whose parents came over in sailing ship or steamer from across the water and those whose ancestors stepped ashore into the wooded wilderness at Plymouth or at the mouth of the Hudson, the Delaware, or the James nearly three centuries ago. No fellow citizen of ours is entitled to any peculiar regard because of the way in which he worships his maker, or because of the birthplace of himself or his parents, nor should he be in any way discriminated against therefore. Each must stand on his own worth as a man, and each is entitled to be judged solely thereby. There is no danger of having too many immigrants of the right kind. It makes no difference from what country they come. If they are sound in body and in mind, and above all, if they are of good character, so that we can rest assured that their children and grandchildren will be worthy fellow citizens of our children and grandchildren, then we should welcome them with cordial hospitality. But the citizenship of this country should not be debased. It is vital that we should keep high the standard of well-being among our wage workers, and therefore we should not admit masses of men whose standards of living and whose personal customs and habits are such that they tend to lower the level of the American wage worker. And above all, we should not admit any man of an unworthy type, any man concerning whom we can say that he will himself be a bad citizen, or that his children and grandchildren will detract from instead of adding to the sum of the good citizenship of the country. 
Similarly, we should take the greatest care about naturalization. Fraudulent naturalization, the naturalization of improper persons, is a curse to our government, and it is the affair of every honest voter, wherever born, to see that no fraudulent voting is allowed, that no fraud in connection with naturalization is permitted. In the past year, the cases of false, fraudulent, and improper naturalization of aliens coming to the attention of the executive branches of the government have increased to an alarming degree. Extensive sales of forged certificates of naturalization have been discovered, as well as many cases of naturalization secured by perjury and fraud. And in addition, instances have accumulated showing that many courts issue certificates of naturalization carelessly and upon insufficient evidence. Under the Constitution, it is in the power of the Congress to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, and numerous laws have from time to time been enacted for that purpose, which have been supplanted in a few states by state laws having special application. The federal statutes permit naturalization by any court of record in the United States, having common law jurisdiction and a seal and clerk, except the police court of the District of Columbia and nearly all these courts exercise this important function. It results that where so many courts of such varying grades have jurisdiction, there is lack of uniformity in the rules applied in conferring naturalization. Some courts are strict and others lax. An alien who may secure naturalization in one place might be denied it in another, and the intent of the constitutional provision is in fact defeated. Furthermore, the certificates of naturalization issued by the courts differ widely in wording and appearance, and when they are brought into use in foreign countries are frequently subject to suspicion. There should be a comprehensive revision of the naturalization laws. The courts having power to naturalize should be definitely named by national authority. The testimony upon which naturalization may be conferred should be definitely prescribed. Publication of impending naturalization applications should be required in advance of their hearing in court. The form and wording of all certificates issued should be uniform throughout the country, and the courts should be required to make returns to the Secretary of State at stated periods of all naturalizations conferred. Not only are the laws relating to naturalization now defective, but those relating to citizenship of the United States ought also to be made the subject of scientific inquiry with a view to probable further legislation. By what acts expatriation may be assumed to have been accomplished, how long an American citizen may reside abroad and receive the protection of our passport, whether any degree of protection should be extended to one who has made the declaration of intention to become a citizen of the United States but has not secured naturalization, are questions of serious import, involving personal rights and often producing friction between this government and foreign governments. Yet, upon these questions, our laws are silent. I recommend that an examination be made into the subjects of citizenship, expatriation, and protection of Americans abroad with a view to appropriate legislation. The power of the government to protect the integrity of the elections of its own officials is inherent and has been recognized and affirmed by repeated declarations of the Supreme Court. There is no enemy of free government more dangerous and none so insidious as the corruption of the electorate. No one defends or excuses corruption, and it would seem to follow that none would oppose vigorous measures to eradicate it. 
I recommend the enactment of a law directed against bribery and corruption in federal elections. The details of such a law may be safely left to the wise discretion of the Congress, but it should go as far as under the Constitution it is possible to go and should include severe penalties against him who gives or receives a bribe intended to influence his act or opinion as an elector, and provisions for the publication not only of the expenditures for nominations and elections of all candidates, but also of all contributions received and expenditures made by political committees. No subject is better worthy the attention of the Congress than that portion of the report of the Attorney General dealing with the long delays and the great obstruction to justice experienced in the cases of Beavers, Green and Gaynor, and Benson. Were these isolated and special cases, I should not call your attention to them. But the difficulties encountered as regards these men who have been indicted for criminal practices are not exceptional. They are precisely similar in kind to what occurs again and again in the case of criminals who have sufficient means to enable them to take advantage of a system of procedure which has grown up in the federal courts and which amounts in effect to making the law easy of enforcement against the man who has no money, and difficult of enforcement even to the point of sometimes securing immunity as regards the man who has money. In criminal cases, the writ of the United States should run throughout its borders. The wheels of justice should not be clogged, as they have been clogged in the cases above mentioned, where it has proved absolutely impossible to bring the accused to the place appointed by the Constitution for his trial. Of recent years, there has been grave and increasing complaint of the difficulty of bringing to justice those criminals whose criminality, instead of being against one person in the Republic, is against all persons in the Republic, because it is against the Republic itself. Under any circumstance, and from the very nature of the case, it is often exceedingly difficult to secure proper punishment of those who have been guilty of wrongdoing against the government. By the time the offender can be brought into court, the popular wrath against him has generally subsided, and there is, in most instances, very slight danger indeed of any prejudice existing in the minds of the jury against him. At present, the interests of the innocent man are amply safeguarded. But the interests of the government, that is, the interests of honest administration, that is, the interests of the people, are not recognized as they should be. No subject better warrants the attention of the Congress. Indeed, no subject better warrants the attention of the bench and the bar throughout the United States. Alaska, like all our territorial acquisitions, has proved resourceful beyond the expectations of those who made the purchase. It has become the home of many hardy, industrious, and thrifty American citizens. Towns of a permanent character have been built. The extent of its wealth in minerals, timber, fisheries, and agriculture, while great, is probably not comprehended yet in any just measure by our people. We do know, however, that from a very small beginning its products have grown until they are a steady and material contribution to the wealth of the nation. Owing to the immensity of Alaska and its location in the far north, it is a difficult matter to provide many things essential to its growth and to the happiness and comfort of its people by private enterprise alone. It should, therefore, receive reasonable aid from the government. 
The government has already done excellent work for Alaska in laying cables and building telegraph lines. This work has been done in the most economical and efficient way by the Signal Corps of the Army. In some respects, it has outgrown its present laws, while in others those laws have been found to be inadequate. In order to obtain information upon which I could rely, I caused an official of the Department of Justice, in whose judgment I have confidence, to visit Alaska during the past summer for the purpose of ascertaining how government is administered there and what legislation is actually needed at present. A statement of the conditions found to exist, together with some recommendations and the reasons therefore, in which I strongly concur, will be found in the annual report of the Attorney General. In some instances, I feel that the legislation suggested is so imperatively needed that I am moved briefly to emphasize the Attorney General's proposals. Under the Code of Alaska as it now stands, many purely administrative powers and duties, including by far the most important, devolve upon the district judges or upon the clerks of the district court acting under the discretion of the judges, while the governor, upon whom these powers and duties should logically fall, has nothing specific to do except to make annual reports, issue Thanksgiving Day proclamations, and appoint Indian policemen and notaries public. I believe it essential to good government in Alaska, and therefore recommend that the Congress divest the district judges and the clerks of their courts of the administrative or executive functions that they now exercise and cast them upon the governor. This would not be an innovation. It would simply conform the government of Alaska to fundamental principles, making the governorship a real instead of a merely nominal office, and leaving the judges free to give their entire attention to their judicial duties and at the same time removing them from a great deal of the strife that now embarrasses the judicial office in Alaska. I also recommend that the salaries of the district judges and district attorneys in Alaska be increased so as to make them equal to those received by corresponding officers in the United States after deducting the difference in cost of living, that the district attorneys should be prohibited from engaging in private practice, that United States commissioners be appointed by the governor of the territory instead of by the district judges, and that a fixed salary be provided for them to take the place of the discredited fee system, which should be abolished in all offices, that a mounted constabulary be created to police the territory outside the limits of incorporated towns, a vast section now wholly without police protection, and that some provision be made to at least lessen the oppressive delays and costs that now attend the prosecution of appeals from the District Court of Alaska. There should be a division of the existing judicial districts and an increase in the number of judges. Alaska should have a delegate in the Congress. Where possible, the Congress should aid in the construction of needed wagon roads. Additional lighthouses should be provided. In my judgment, it is especially important to aid in such manner as seems just and feasible in the construction of a trunk line of railway to connect the Gulf of Alaska with the Yukon River through American territory. This would be most beneficial to the development of the resources of the territory and to the comfort and welfare of its people. Salmon hatcheries should be established in many different streams so as to secure the preservation of this valuable food fish. 
Salmon fisheries and canneries should be prohibited on certain of the rivers where the mass of those Indians dwell who live almost exclusively on fish. The Alaskan natives are kindly, intelligent, anxious to learn, and willing to work. Those who have come under the influence of civilization, even for a limited period, have proved their capability of becoming self-supporting, self-respecting citizens, and ask only for the just enforcement of law and intelligent instruction and supervision. Others, living in more remote regions, primitive, simple hunters and fisher folk, who know only the life of the woods and the waters, are daily being confronted with 20th century civilization with all of its complexities. Their country is being overrun by strangers, the game slaughtered and driven away, the streams depleted of fish, and hitherto unknown and fatal diseases brought to them, all of which combine to produce a state of abject poverty and want which must result in their extinction. Action in their interest is demanded by every consideration of justice and humanity. The needs of these people are the abolition of the present fee system, whereby the native is degraded, imposed upon, and taught the injustice of law. The establishment of hospitals at central points, so that contagious diseases that are brought to them continually by incoming whites may be localized and not allowed to become epidemic to spread death and destitution over great areas. The development of the educational system in the form of practical training in such industries as will assure the Indians self-support under the changed conditions in which they will have to live. The duties of the office of the governor should be extended to include the supervision of Indian affairs with necessary assistance in different districts. He should be provided with the means and the power to protect and advise the native people, to furnish medical treatment in time of epidemics, and to extend material relief in periods of famine and extreme destitution. The Alaskan natives should be given the right to acquire, hold, and dispose of property upon the same conditions as given other inhabitants, and the privilege of citizenship should be given to such as may be able to meet certain definite requirements. In Hawaii, Congress should give the governor power to remove all the officials appointed under him. The harbor of Honolulu should be dredged. The Marine Hospital Service should be empowered to study leprosy in the islands. I ask special consideration for the report and recommendation of the governor of Puerto Rico. End of section 13. Recording by J. Troop in New York City.